Our scripture reading this evening is from 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13, it's on page 1786 of the Bibles in the pews. And as we approach God's word, let's come before him in prayer. O Lord our God, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you what it we thank you for what it teaches us about who you are. We thank you for what it teaches us about what you do for us in Christ. And we thank you for what it teaches us about how we can live in the life of your Holy Spirit. And Lord, we pray that as we read your word this evening, your beautiful word, that you will send your Holy Spirit to fill our hearts, to open our minds, and to transform our lives so that more and more we look like Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. <clears throat> First Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection, as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord for us this evening. It really is hard for me to believe that it's been a whole month since we had our last sermon on 1 Corinthians 13. Um, and like I said in that sermon, you know, I was worried when we started this series that I was going to get sick of it, that Carl might get sick of it. Um, and I don't know if Carl has, I don't think he has, but I definitely haven't. 
Um, and it's, it's just really exciting to dig into this passage and to, to study it, um, looking at the full counsel of, of Scripture. Uh, this evening, we're going to be continuing our study of 1 Corinthians 13 by looking at this phrase in verse 6, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. We've been looking at this passage in depth for a while now. I, th I think we've been doing this since, since like January, haven't we? Has it been that long? It's been a while. Um, and, and we've been looking at how we can love with God's love, with God's self-sacrificing, other-receiving, agape love. And Paul starts out his description of, of what love does with these two adjectives, love, or with these two, with these two positives. Love is patient and love is kind which we looked at a little while back. Love is patient, love suffers long, and love is kind. Love endures suffering, and love acts out of kindness towards other people. And we looked at these two things quite a while back, but then there's this, this whole list of things that love does not do. Love does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs, and then tonight, we're looking at the last one of this list of negatives. But you can't look at it without looking at the positive that's paired with it. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. And there's two things that I want to point out as we begin. And the first is that these two verbs in this sentence, delight and rejoice, they're the same word in the Greek. Delight, rejoice, these are the same thing. Um, same word. And so, so that's a big reason why these two things go together. Love doesn't rejoice in evil. It rejoices with the truth. So that, that was just something I wanted to point out. And the second thing that I want to point out is that at a glance, it seems like these, these two things are kind of a weird pairing. Why pair evil with truth as its opposite? Wouldn't the opposite of evil be good? The, the Greek language has uh, a, a few different words for evil, just like it has a few different words for love. It has a word that means bad. It has a word that means ugly. It has a word that means wicked. But the word that Paul uses here is literally not right. It's not right. And so it would seem natural for him to say, love does not rejoice in what is not right, but it rejoices in what is right. But that's not what he says. He says, love does not rejoice in what is not right, but rejoices with the truth. Not in the truth, but with the truth. So why does Paul match up evil against the truth? And we're just going to let that one sit for a little while and come back to it later. Love does not rejoice in evil. This seems like a little bit of a letdown. I mean, Paul has been building and building and building this picture of what love is like. And here at the end of this list, love envies not, love boasts not, love is not puffed up, it's not rude, it seeks not its own, it's not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. And then love does not delight in evil. This hardly seems like great praise. Who delights? In evil, Who rejoices in the misfortunes of others? This seems like one of those things that should just go unsaid. Like love doesn't murder people. Paul doesn't list that here, but we assume that that's true. Love doesn't murder people. Paul doesn't even need to say that. 
So, so why, why would Paul write this? It hardly seems like great praise to say that love doesn't rejoice in evil. But you remember that throughout this passage, Paul has been sort of criticizing the behavior of the Corinthian Christians. He's been criticizing the way that the Corinthian Christians are living their lives and saying love doesn't live that way. Love lives differently than the way that you're living. And so maybe, maybe Paul puts it this way because rejoicing in evil is not the exception. Maybe Paul puts it this way because rejoicing in evil is something that everybody does in some way. Maybe we all delight in evil. We wouldn't, we wouldn't put it that way, of course. Nobody would say, I delight in evil. But maybe we do. Maybe we delight in evil in small ways, in, in subtle ways, in secret ways. Lou Smeads, who wrote a whole book on 1 Corinthians 13, which Carl and I have been uh, reading through as we've been doing this series, Lou Smeads says that we delight in evil any time that we try to find a respectable place for it in the grand scheme of things. Whenever we look at evil and we say, it's okay, it's meant to be there, we are delighting in evil in, in a certain way. There's a philosophical position called monism that sort of works this way. It says that when we're right up close, when we're right up close in the face of it, we see good and evil and they seem random and the good is really good and evil is terrible. But that when we take a step back and we see the big picture, we see that evil and good, evil and good fit together nicely to form this sort of mosaic of light and darkness and it forms this beautiful picture and so evil is necessary. Smead says that that's one of the ways that we delight in evil. But there's other ways that we delight in evil too, small ways. I remember when I was a kid, I was probably in second grade and during lunch someone in our group of friends asked, if a genie gave you one wish, what would it be? And one of my friends said, well, I would wish that there was no sin, which seems like a very, very good Christian thing to say. I, 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 I would wish that there was no sin. And I remember saying, but then there wouldn't be any good books. This is the kind of kid I was in second grade. And maybe that's one way that we delight in evil, in, in small ways. When we take satisfaction in, in reading something or in watching something that's horrible, something that offends us, something that makes us angry and indignant, and we stand up in our self-righteousness and we say that that's terrible. Maybe when we watch people fight on reality TV shows, we're delighting in evil. Maybe when we watch the news and get really angry at that one guy who did that one thing, we're delighting in evil. And then, of course, there's the flagrant ways that people delight in evil, the obvious ways. Pornography, drunkenness, wrath, violence, abuse. Paul tells a story earlier in this letter in 1 Corinthians 5 about how the church has allowed, allowed a Christian man to shack up with his mother-in-law, which is something that even the pagans in Corinth would have considered to be sinful. And Paul uses this example in 1 Corinthians 5 to show the Corinthian Christians that they really aren't as spiritual as they think they are if they're allowing such flagrant sins to go on without even a word of correction. But for many people, our rejoicing in, in evil is not so flagrant. It's not so obvious. We rejoice in evil in little ways, with acceptable sins, which are different depending on what culture you're in. But here maybe it's a little bit of greed a little bit of pride, just a little bit of gluttony, 
and gossip, of course. Oh, did you hear what happened to Mrs. Vander Vander's boy? Bless his little heart. Can't say I didn't see it coming, though. What goes around comes around. Sometimes we tolerate and even accept evil because it makes our load easier to bear. There's that old saying that misery loves company, and it's true. We rejoice in evil just a little because it makes us feel better about ourselves when bad things happen to other people. And so we find a place for evil. We get comfortable with it. We tolerate it, accept it. We rejoice in it just a little just to make ourselves feel better. And this really shouldn't be a surprise to us because this is what scripture teaches us. Jeremiah 17, 9 says that the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? And the catechism, which we read earlier in the service, takes it to a whole, I mean, it, it states it so boldly that I have a natural tendency to hate God and my neighbor. We delight in evil. We're subtle about it. We're secret about it. But our natural tendency, our natural behavior is not to love. And this is how things have been since the fall in Genesis 3. The book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, is this awesome story about the goodness of God and the wickedness of humanity. God creates the whole universe, the whole creation, and throughout the creation story, we see God saying, it's good. It's good. And at the end of everything, he looks at everything that he's made and he says, it's very good. And then humanity sort of says, thanks God, you've done a good job, but we'll take it from here. We'll decide what's good for ourselves. And so Adam and Eve eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and they decide for themselves. And the whole rest of the book of Genesis is a story about the decline of humanity. Cain kills Abel. Lamech sings songs to his wives about the men he's killed. Noah gets drunk and curses his son. All the peoples of the earth join together to build a tower to the heavens to take control of history away from God. But through it all, God is working to bring his creation back to himself. And so God makes a covenant with Abraham, a promise that through him and through his descendants, he will work to restore humanity back to himself, back to right relationship, back to the original goodness of creation. This is the promise that God makes to Abraham. And time and time again, Abraham and his descendants threaten this promise by breaking it. Abraham tries to pawn off his wife, Sarah, not once but twice in the book of Genesis. Then Sarah tries to fulfill God's promise on her own by giving Abraham her servant girl for him to sleep with. Jacob steals the birthright from Esau. Jacob's sons sell their own brother Joseph into slavery. Time and time again, the covenant that God makes with his people is threatened by people deciding for themselves what is good. But in spite of it all, God works to bring humanity back. God works to preserve his people. God works to keep his promise, even though people fail again and again and again. And then you get to the end of the book of Genesis, and you see Joseph 
telling his brothers, the same brothers who sold him into slavery, what you intended for evil, God worked for good to do what is now being accomplished, the saving of many lives. God works good in spite of evil. God works good against evil. And this is what Paul is teaching us in this little sentence in 1 Corinthians 13. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Love has no place for evil. Love does not make an acceptable place for evil in the world, even in the big picture, even in the grand scheme of things. Love endures evil, love bears evil, love suffers evil, but not for a second does love accept evil as a necessary part of this life. Evil is what's not right with the world. That's the word that Paul uses here, what's not right with the world. And love fights against that with everything that it has. Love mourns the existence of evil. And so when bad things happen to people, love doesn't rejoice. Not even a little bit, not even subtly, not even secretly. Love only sees the hurt that evil causes in people's lives. Love sees the brokenness and the heartache and the pain and it mourns and it cries out and it reaches out to help and to comfort and to heal. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. And now we go back to the question from the beginning. Why does Paul say rejoices with the truth? Why doesn't Paul say love rejoices in the good or love rejoices in what's right? It seems like kind of a weird way to put it that love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. And to understand what Paul's saying, we have to look a little bit at what the Bible means by truth. Truth in the Bible isn't just factual statements or, or accurate propositions. Truth in the Bible is way bigger than that. We see this especially in the Gospel of John. In the Gospel of John, the word truth comes up a lot. Jesus says to Pilate in John chapter 18, verse 37, you're nodding, you know what I'm going to say. For this reason I was born, for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. So what does Jesus mean by this? What does it mean? What does it mean that Jesus testifies to the truth? And what does it mean that everyone on the side of truth listens to Jesus? Biblically speaking, truth is so much bigger than accurate statements. Truth in the Bible is the way that things are supposed to be. Truth is the way that God intends for things to be. It's what God in his will intends for the earth to be. Truth is the way that everything will be set right and made good again. So when Paul puts these two things against each other, evil and truth, he's saying that love does not delight when things are not right, but love rejoices in the work of God in setting everything right again, making everything the way that it's supposed to be. In John 14, verse 6, Jesus tells his disciples, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the truth. 
To be on the side of truth is to be on the side of Jesus. The same Jesus who fights against evil, the same Jesus who defeats sin and death in his death and resurrection, the same Jesus who is working to restore humanity to right relationship with God, the same Jesus who fulfills the law and forgives our sins and gives us his spirit so that we can live with God. To rejoice with the truth is to rejoice with Jesus. To rejoice with the truth is to rejoice in the victory that Jesus has won over evil and sin and death. To rejoice with the truth is to rejoice in the work of God, making all things right, making all things good, restoring creation to the way it was supposed to be. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. This love is a gift from God. It's a divine blessing. It's something that we can't accomplish on our own because of our sinful nature unless, as the catechism puts it, we are born again by the Spirit of God. That's what we testified earlier this evening. When we take the side of truth, when we rejoice with the truth, when we, we rejoice with the work of reconciliation that God is doing, And in rejoicing with the truth, we look forward to the future, when God will set everything right, when God will make all things new. It's not hard for us to see that evil still has a grip on this world. We see it in the news, we see it in the bulletin, we see it in the lives of the people who we love and who we know. We see evil, we see how it hurts people and tears them down and it makes us mourn It makes us mourn, but we do not mourn as those without hope because we have a powerful Savior who is the truth. We have a powerful Savior who's come into the world to put an end to sin and evil and who is working still in us through his Holy Spirit. We have a powerful Savior who will work for good in spite of evil never accepting it, never finding a respectable place for it. We have a powerful Savior who will not rest until evil is completely defeated, until death is swallowed up in victory and the dead are raised and darkness is no more. It is in him that we put our hope, in him that we rejoice. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, Our gracious God, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you that it shows us that we do not have to accept evil. We thank you that it shows us that we can join you in fighting against evil and crying out against it with every fiber of our being. And we do, O God. We mourn the effects of sin in this world. We mourn the effects of sin in our own lives and we cry out to you for deliverance. Heal us, we pray. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, amen.